The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, as I mentioned, you know we've been marching our way through the Advent season. We're now in our third week. Uh, on the first of Sunday of December, Pastor Steve spoke on hope and followed it up last Sunday with joy, and, and uh, it's no mystery, right? We're going to be talking about peace today. And I think one of the great challenges of trying to cover so broad a theme like, like these themes that we're talking about is that there's just so much that you can say. And I think the greatest challenge in trying to put together a sermon is, is not really trying to decide what to say, but like what not to say. There's just there's so much there. And so uh, this morning, I'm going to, or this afternoon, I'm going to apologize in advance. And there's going to be a lot of scripture that we're going to go through, but uh, please stay with me. I think uh, I would much rather you hear from the word of the Lord, uh, God's word, than from me. And so before we begin, why don't we pray together, and then we'll start here. Lord, we thank you that in your great wisdom that you have called us to worship you. That you've called us to come together regularly as a community of faith to remind us of things that we are so prone to forget. We thank you, God, that in your wisdom that you have instituted traditions such as these, even among your people as they wandered through the wilderness to remind us again of things that we are so prone to forget. Uh, in the midst of, of trying to just survive in our own lives, we, we often lose sight of you. The wonder of who you are, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do is lost in the busyness of our lives and the distractions that take our eyes and our hearts away from you. And so we pray, God, that in this season as we march towards Christmas, that we, above all other people, would celebrate um, with great joy, with a living hope, and that we would be overwhelmed with your peace, a sense of your presence, your wholeness in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you administer to your people through your word today. God, I have nothing to say uh, that will bless them, that would minister to them, that would meet their needs, but you do. And so we pray, God, that um, you would do just that in your son's precious name. We pray all these things. Amen. So uh, a few weeks ago, I, I went down to St. Louis as we do every Thanksgiving. It's become a tradition for us for over two decades now. And I have three sisters. We each have three children. And so it's, it's a little less chaotic now because the children are so much older, but it's something that we always look forward to every year. And um, we always watch a movie over Thanksgiving break in St. Louis. And, and um, I, I realized, like, usually the the movies that are not really that are really good, expected to do really well, wait till Christmas, and then they, you know they they get released then. And then the movies that are are not anticipated to do as well get released in Thanksgiving. And so there's been a lot of duds over the years watching movies over Thanksgiving. But I watched I think the best one that we've ever watched um, over Thanksgiving a few weeks ago, and it's it's called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and uh, it's really a, a story. It's really the story of uh, a journalist from Esquire magazine named Tom Junode, and uh, his unique friendship with uh, Mr. Rogers. Everyone here know Mr. Rogers, or am I dating myself? Fred Rogers. Um, for over three decades, he, he was really the writer, the producer of, of, a, of a children's, um, I hate to call it a children's show because it's so much more than that, 
And uh, this movie was really based on, uh, as I said, the friendship between really what was a cynical, kind of jaded journalist uh, named Tom Juno. And he was kind of commissioned through the magazine. They had this theme about trying to find the American heroes and doing stories on them. And what initially started as, well, we'll just do a little piece on, um, on Mr. Rogers in the twilight of his life. And it just turned into something much more than that. He ended up being in the cover um, of Esquire magazine uh, profiled as uh, under a, uh, an article that, that was entitled in 1998, Can You Say Hero? And uh, the movie is really largely based off uh, this article written by Junod. And, uh, and it's, it's really, I think, set me off on this, this kind of a nostalgic journey. I'd, there was, a, there was a documentary on the, uh, the life of, of Mr. Rogers that came out about a year ago. I watched that. And then after watching this movie, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it's because I was back at my old house. This is my sister actually lives in the house that I grew up in. But I just got really nostalgic, really. Um, and I started watching all these old Mr. Rogers shows. I started like reading all these oral articles about Mr. Rogers, watching every interview I could find on YouTube. And, and you know, some, you know, growing up in the 90s, there was a lot of parodies making fun of Mr. Rogers. If you watch SNL back when Eddie Murphy was, and it was really done in pretty poor taste. But uh, this guy, digging into his life, the more I just realized just what an amazing man this, this man was. And I, I think I've become cynical over the years. Um, as you see, a lot of the people that you look up to, whether it's you know, these big-name pastors or even you know, folks who are, are lifted up as this amazing people throughout history and just dig deeper into their lives and you realize there's, there's a dark side to all of them. Somehow it seems like Mr. Rogers has, has, has been able to avoid that. And all the people that knew him the best uh, just speak so highly of him. I mean, he was actually, I don't know if you know this, but he was actually an, ador- an ordained uh, Presbyterian minister. Never really went into to pastor a church, but saw his show uh, really as a ministry to the people and, and, and children especially. And so when you look at him, when you watch him over interviews, when you listen to people talk about him, you just get this sense that here's a man who really just exudes like all the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, just such a good man. And uh, so I was encouraged in that way that, man, here's a guy who actually lived out his faith and did it so, to so many in that season. Is this mic cutting out? Should I grab one? I'm going to grab this. Okay. Um, but then as I started digging deeper, I realized, you know, even towards the twilight of his life, in his last few years, when he stopped doing this show, um, he's this iconic figure in our culture. And he ended up dying, I think, shortly after 9-11. But there were all these things that ha- would happen in, in, you know, moments in U.S. history where people would go back to Mr. Rogers and say, say something. Say something to the people. We, they need to hear from you. And you get the sense, even in, in these later stages of his life, that even he, this guy who just always saw the good in people, who was always so optimistic, um, became somewhat distressed, even in the end of his life. And, uh, you know, I think it was a real wake-up call even for me, because I was like, I, I started to feel really sad. I'm like, man, if this guy, Mr. Rogers, you know, can't see the good in this world, then who can, really? And uh, I started to actually really feel sad towards the end of our Thanksgiving break, and I'm, I'm trying to be better about processing my emotions, naming them, expressing them, especially to my wife. She's so much more emotionally intelligent than I am. 
But uh, in this process, I'm just, I was sharing with her, like, you know, I'm feeling pretty sad. And, and I remember, like, she went back to work on Monday. I was still feeling kind of blue. And she texted me. She's like, it's because of that Mr. Rogers movie. You watched that Mr. Rogers movie. <laughs> and I was like, thanks. That's not helping. <laughs> but uh, don't worry. I'm not going to slip into clinical depression here. It's just, but I did feel this sense of sadness. And actually, around that same time, over the Thanksgiving break, there was this, I don't know if you heard, but there's this horrible, horrible a story that came out in the news of a, of, a, of a UIC student named Ruth George. I hate to mention this. I hope there's not really a lot of young folks here, but uh, just a few weeks right after Thanksgiving, I think the day after Thanksgiving, um, she was found dead in her car, strangled and assaulted uh, just by this total random stranger who I guess was trying to hit on her late or early in the morning one night on the campus. And I was reading this story, and I was just, I was just blown away. It was just such random violence, so heartbreaking, impossible to understand, right here in our town. And again, this fed into this this sense of real sadness and and even a sense of just, how do we find hope in such a broken world like this? And, you know, we talk about these things like hope, peace, and joy, and, and these are things that we are speaking in the Advent season, and yet they seem so lofty, right? How do we find peace in a world that is so utterly broken? I think this is a question that even Mr. Rogers was asking himself in the end of his life. How do we find peace when I am so utterly broken? You know, as the movie a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood explores, I think that is really the question that this journalist who was so cynical was, was struck with. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, we find the most detailed account of Jesus' birth. An angel of the Lord tells the shepherds that the Savior has been born in Bethlehem, and he can be found in a manger. And then something remarkable happens. We're told immediately after this announcement by the angel of the Lord, there's a whole host of angels that suddenly appear. And they're singing. And they're celebrating the arrival of God's son to earth. And it's a very simple chorus. And it says this in Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. You know, as Pastor Steve has already mentioned, our, I think our westernized, commercialized ideas of Christmas, they kind of impose these hallmark images of a softly glowing Jesus lying in this perfect crate and barrel manger nestled inside a rustic pottery barn. And we romantically sing about the night of Jesus' birth, you know, as silent night, as a holy night where the little Lord Jesus is sleeping, right, with a heavenly peace. And we sing about the fact that no crying he makes, right? Because he's a perfect baby. Perfect babies don't cry, right? And yet, that's not true, right? I mean, I don't think the Bible actually says that Jesus never cried. Some of you who have young babies, I, I know I've, I've seen your baby sleeping, and sometimes I'll say, oh, he looks just like baby Jesus. And I realize I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. It's really bad theology. But... Um, <laughs> And I think just like the David Sermon series, if we're really honest, a closer study at the biblical text, I think, has a way of shattering these, these visions, these sanitized pictures of what we think the Bible really says, of these narratives that are in the Bible. And they don't match, really, the narratives in our own head and heart. 
But not long after Jesus' birth, after the wise men visit Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew tells us this. Matthew 2, 16 through 18. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And this is such a tragic and and chilling account of what was happening. You know, if the night of Jesus' birth was marked by heavenly peace or by a holy silence, it's not long before Bethlehem's pierced with the cries of weeping mothers who have been violently, senselessly taken from them, and their children are slaughtered even right before them. And just imagine just the horrifying sound of this. I mean, I don't think there's any more heart-wrenching a sound than the cry of a mother who has lost a child. You know, the Bible, I think, pulls no punches when it comes to displaying man's brokenness in all of its glory. And it, it doesn't really try to lift up, you know, even its villains or its heroes as something glorious. We are all broken. And this is the world that the Son of God entered. And this is the world that is crying out for peace. If we go back through the Old Testament, we realize this is actually the consistent cry of God's people all throughout their history. It has been this cry for peace. The entire story of the Jewish people has been a struggle for peace. And at times, not just peace, but just even a struggle for their very existence. They came so many times, like this close to just being wiped off the face of the earth. When you go through the Old Testament, you look, you can see Egyptians under Pharaoh, the Philistines who were led by Goliath, the Assyrians who were led by Sennacherib, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, the Persians even under the evil Haman. And it doesn't stop, even when the Son of God arrives in Bethlehem with, with Herod. And with this long history of oppression and suffering, it's, it's easy to understand, I think, why they misunderstood Jesus' first coming. They were so desperate for a Savior, for the Messiah to come and overthrow their oppressors so that they might finally have peace under the righteous rule of the Messiah. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, I think, captures the sentiment of the people so well. Even six centuries before Jesus was born in Jeremiah 8.15, says this, we hoped for peace, but no good has come. For a time of healing, but there is only terror. And knowing their history, I think it makes sense that the word shalom, or peace, is probably the most repeated word among Jews, even today. This is not just a flippant way in which Jewish people greet one another. It, it represents a longing in the soul. A longing that for all that is wrong in this world to one day be made right, for all that is broken and incomplete to one day be restored and made whole. This is shalom. And when we greet one another, this is what you're wishing for the person, peace. But it's important to realize that despite the fact that God's people longed for peace from all of their oppressors, what God was constantly telling them and teaching them was that the greatest threat of their existence was not 
the enemy nations that surrounded them, their greatest enemy was actually residing inside them. It was a sin in their heart. It was their sinful nature. And they could not find peace because they had declared war on God. And Paul speaks to this in Romans 8-7 when he says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And so the Bible teaches us that all of us are born with this sinful nature that is hostile to God. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We do not submit to God's law, nor can we in our, in our sinful nature do so. Therefore, our issue is not our sinful behavior that needs redirection. It's our sinful nature that needs redemption. And we talk about this often in, in our parenting seminars. But most of us live our whole lives fully convinced that we're, we're not living with this kind of blatant hostility. We're not living with this kind of enmity towards God. Right? And honestly, I think that is what the enemy would want us to believe, would have us believe. But we are. All of us. You know, Joseph Stalin, the communist leader of the Soviet Union in the 20th century, uh, he's thought to have been responsible for the deaths of at least 20, 20 million people. And apparently he was someone who, who at one time believed in God. In his younger days, he actually was a seminary student. But as he got older in his adult years, he became an avowed atheist, someone who did not believe in the existence of God. And Ravi Zacharias, in his book, Can Man Live Without God, he shares about uh, Joseph Stalin's last moments on earth, which was based on an account from his daughter, Svetlana. And he says this, According to Svetlana, as Stalin lay dying, plagued with terrifying hallucinations, he suddenly sat halfway up in bed and clenched his fist toward the heavens once more, fell back upon his pillow, and was dead. And I know most of us, we don't display this kind of overt defiance towards God. And I know there are probably very few atheists even in this room. But this account just fascinates me because I think in Stalin's last moments, while horrifying, is also very incredibly honest. I mean, here's a man who spent his entire life rejecting the notion that God exists. And yet in his last moments on earth, he felt compelled to, to raise his fist in defiance of a God that he said he didn't even believe in. And I think in his deathbed, Joseph Stalin was more honest than most of us are for much of our lives, if not our whole lives. That we are living in rebellion of a holy God, whether we care to acknowledge his existence or not. And that one day we will all have to come to terms with this reality. You know, I think it's easy to deceive ourselves when it comes to our relationship with God because we often lie to ourselves and we, we just choose. We cannot or we, we will not hear the voice of God in our lives. But what about the people around us and the voices that they speak into our lives? What, what do they tell us? Because I think it's often the broken horizontal, horizontal relationships that we have with one another that reveal the brokenness in our vertical relationship with God. You know, I came across a great example of this um, recently. One of my friends, who is a mother of two, she lives in Texas, and she has a four-year-old daughter who apparently was very unhappy with the way that my friend, her mother, was talking to her. And so she ran upstairs, and she grabbed an iPad, and she recorded this, just a short video I want to show you. 
awesome. You're not being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, thankful, and self-control. That's not being self-control. It's bad. I don't like it. I'm going to tell my friends and Miss Tracy all the things in the whole wide world. <laughs> so I don't know if you could tell what's going on there, but apparently her mom was not showing much self through the fruit of the spirit, especially self-control. And so she felt compelled to run upstairs and record this and share it with the world. I think her mom beat her to it because she posted it on Facebook. But, you know, I think children are the most underrated instruments of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I'm convinced that if our spouses are unable to convince us of our own brokenness, then God will often use our children to open our eyes to it. And in this broken world, even the most intimate, earthly relationships that are supposed to be marked by and nurtured in love often find themselves broken, right? Since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, the world has never really experienced peace. And it doesn't take long for this to manifest itself. I think, in fact, in Adam and Eve's first children, Cain and Abel, we see just how capable that we are of violence towards one another. Genesis 4, 8, the chapter immediately following the fall, we read this. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field, while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Our broken relationship with God wastes no time in manifesting itself in the brokenness with those around us. When this is broken, this is sure to follow. When we rebel against God, we will also find ourselves at war with our fellow man who is created in God's image. And while this is often painful for us, I believe God in his mercy will often use the broken relationships in our lives to awaken us to our need to be made right with him. So when Jesus arrives, this is actually good news. As Luke 2.12 states to the shepherds, it says, But the angels said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. I think this is the first moment the word good news is used in the, in the New Testament. And I think the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald, we just sang that last week, captures it so well. It says, Hark the Herald Angel Sings. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. This is why we don't have to be afraid. This is why we should have great joy. Because there is peace on earth. Why? Because God and sinners, we have been reconciled to God. You see, God didn't come to earth just to tell us of God's desire to restore us back into relationship with him. But he has come to present himself as the provision for making peace with God. And this is why John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is why I believe shepherds are the first witnesses and the first messengers of the gospel. They could understand this connection, unlike any others. And this was a message that had been distorted by sinful and by selfish priests and prophets for centuries upon centuries. Jeremiah 6, 13, 14, it says this, From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. 
but that message would no longer be lost on his people. God himself would come down in the form of a child, and he would grow up, and he would minister, and he would speak of God, and he would be God, and he would clear out the temple of all the money changers and offer himself up on our behalf. And he would break the barrier and the bridge and the chasm, and he would bridge the chasm between God and man that sin had created. And what is remarkable about all this is, is that unlike the custom of that day, and, and frankly, even today, the one who initiates the peace here is not the offending party. It is the offended one. God is the initiator of peace. And then Ephesians 2.14, Paul writes this. He says, for he, that is Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This peace would not come from our righteousness or our effort or our works. It would simply come through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why in Romans 5.1, Paul says this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. On Palm Sunday, Jesus presents himself as a harbinger of peace in fulfillment of the prophecy found in Zechariah 9. And it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' day, when a king came into a city to conquer it, he he would ride a large war horse to intimidate, to overpower the people before subjugating them. But if a king came in peace... He would ride a donkey, meek and lowly, and yet righteous and victorious, signaling that he has not only come in peace, but he had come to bring peace. You know, if you make your way through the New Testament, I think you'll notice pretty quickly that almost every epistle in the New Testament begins with uh, three words. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. And you'll see it in Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. Philemon, Titus, First and Second Timothy, and then even not just Paul, but First and Second Peter, Second and Third John. They all open with this same greeting: grace and peace. Why is this? And I believe it's because the words capture really the essence of the gospel, these words, that God has given us his son through an incredible act of grace so that we might have peace with him. That is restored back into relationship with him, that we might find wholeness from our broken estate in him. And in the Old Testament before Christ, the greeting was simply shalom, as I shared earlier. In the New Testament, the appropriate greeting is, is charis or grace. And erine, the Greek equivalent of shalom or peace. Grace and peace. And every time we see one another, we are to remind ourselves of this truth of the gospel. How do we find peace? It is only through the grace of God. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think the, this order, the sequence is very important. It's never peace and grace because we cannot experience God's peace apart from first being a recipient of God's grace. This is true of our salvation when by faith we are justified and have peace with God. But I believe this is also true of our, of our journey of faith. In our journey of faith, we must hold on to this truth. When we stray from living in and breathing in and embracing the gospel of grace, this is when we lose sight. This is when we forget the truth of the gospel. This is when we lose this sense of God's peace in our lives, I think. But this is not the end of the story. It's only the beginning, and I think it's fitting that you see this, these words, grace and peace, at the beginning of each epistle. It's not just because it's a greeting, but, you know, as recipients of God's mercy, we are now called to bring God's shalom, his peace, into the world around us. And the epistles of the New Testament often unpack for us how, how we bring that shalom, how we bring that peace with us and to others wherever we go. Isaiah 53, 5 says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. I love this. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, not on us. And it's by his wounds that we are made whole, that we are restored, that we are healed. Out of the healing that we find in Christ, we are to be, as Henry Nouwen puts it, wounded healers to others. When we find healing <coughs> in Christ's wounds, we are empowered to bring healing to others through our healed wounds. Because he has healed us. Because he has restored us. And so when we find peace with God, we are then empowered to bring his peace into our world. <clears throat> you know, that's God's desire for each of us. Not only that we would experience his peace, but that we would share that peace with others. And, I, you know, I'm, again, I'm so grateful for, for Ryan for coming up here and sharing his testimony. I think it's just such a wonderful illustration of that. How he felt by the work of the Holy Spirit. It took him 30 years, I guess, to finally do it, but better late than never. He felt compelled to make peace with a teacher he'd probably never see again if he never wanted to. <coughs> if you've ever been to a social justice rally, you will often hear this repeated in a bullhorn or a megaphone, right? People marching around, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. And what they're essentially saying is, is, until we get justice, until there's equity, until there's fair treatment, until something unjust is overturned, until justice prevails, we will not be quieted. We will not allow for peace. We will continue to march. But the gospel calls us to a different proclamation than no justice, no peace. Yes, we're to fight for justice. Yes, we are to stand for those who are oppressed, who have no voice. But instead of a cry for justice in our search for peace, we are to proclaim God's gospel of grace 
as the path to peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. And this is not because we have divorced our sense of justice from our sense of peace. It is because in the gospel, we are overwhelmed by the truth that God took the justice that we deserved and he placed it squarely on his son in our behalf as our substitute so that we might find true and lasting peace. And this proclamation is not to come just from our mouth. It is to be proclaimed through our lives in forgiving others, in demonstrating kindness and reconciliation. You know, I mentioned earlier about this young student at UIC, Ruth George, who was senselessly murdered. And I, you know, as I was reading some of these, the news coming out, I remember early on there was a statement that came from the family that, that they had forgiven this man who had viciously murdered their daughter and, and that they held nothing against him. And I was just, like, so struck by that. And I, it really caused me to, to think, like, what, what would I do in that situation? Could I even say that? And, you know, later on, Ruth George's mother came out with a more detailed statement, and she said this. um, Ruth lived out her faith, her deep faith in Jesus by loving and serving others, by leaving a legacy of Christ-centered kindness and sacrifice. She was the beloved baby of our family. We grieve with hope. We hold no hatred towards the perpetrator, but our hope is no other girl would be harmed in this way. And for a mother never to experience this type of heartache. That is the cry of Rama, of a mother who has senselessly and violently lost her child in a world that is so broken. Where is the hope in that? How can we make sense of it? Perhaps what's a greater mystery is how is anyone able to extend such grace and to speak peace in that moment? And I think the only explanation can be what they have found in Christ, which is what they profess even in this statement. The cries of David in the face of injustice are all throughout the Psalms. They are called imprecatory Psalms. And in three words, I think they can be summarized as this. Father, vindicate me. Or Father, avenge me. These were often the repeated cries of David. When Saul and and even his sons were seeking his life. As you all well know. This was the cry of David. And yet, the son of David comes along. He's born in the town of David in Bethlehem. And he has a different cry. And it is three words as well. But instead of Father, avenge me, he cries out on the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. It is not only the model that Christ sets this for us, but I believe it is because of the hope we have in Christ that we can bring bring his peace to others. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. You know, in the opening message of Advent, two weeks ago, Pastor Steve spoke about hope. And in that message, he said that our present and our future are primarily connected through our hopes. And then he showed us this diagram of, of how that connection illustrates, is illustrated. And, and then he closed with the message with this, this, this statement, our hopes for the future make all the difference in how we live in the present. Our hopes for the future make all the difference in how we live in the present. Let me close with this. You know, I, I believe there's a similar connection when we talk about peace, this idea of peace. I don't think we can live with peace in a world that is this utterly broken unless we really believe that someday all that is wrong is going to be made right. All that is broken is going to be restored and made new. Unless we believe that he will rule and reign with justice and righteousness and we will rejoice. This is the hope we have. This is the good news which brings great joy. This is the reason why we can find peace in the midst of our brokenness. In the midst of living and reconciling this broken world. Let's bow our heads together. There are some of you perhaps in this room right now who have been struggling to find peace because if you're honest with yourself, you are, you are not right with God. And for some of us, this may be news to us because we hardly ever think about it, where we stand in our relationship with God. But perhaps the brokenness of your relationship with your creator has manifested itself in all the brokenness in the relationships around you. Maybe it's your spouse, your children, or someone in your extended family. I think the holidays have a way of magnifying those broken relationships. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a former friend. Maybe it's a teacher you haven't seen for 30 years. Maybe it's a mercy of God that you are struggling in a relationship with another person because God wants to reveal to you that you need to be restored with him first. That you need to find his peace. That you need to be made whole. God wants to awaken you to your need for him because God loves you. God wants you to see that you will never find peace in your life apart from him. And the good news is that God has made a way.
He himself has come down, taken on flesh and bone. Not just to tell us, but to show us. And not just to show us, but to present himself as our sacrifice. And so if you're in a moment of where you lack peace in your life, let the promise of Christ minister to you. When he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. I suspect there are others in this room who you may feel secure in your relationship with God. You may have a sincere faith in Christ. And yet there is something in your life that has not allowed you to find peace. There is an injustice that has been perpetrated on you that you cannot overcome. And maybe your issue isn't even with another person, but your issue is with God himself. And this has kept you from experiencing the fullness of peace that he offers. But today I pray that you would be reminded that whatever injustice we sense in our lives, no matter what gross injustice that we have endured, it is not lost on God. All of it was poured down upon his son and bringing you into a relationship with him. He loves you. He sees you. He cares for you. And one day he will restore all that is broken in your life. And he will restore this broken world. And until that day, may the Holy Spirit minister to you and give you his peace. May you receive it by faith. So let's take a moment. Let the Holy Spirit minister to us in this time. And in a moment, our worship team will close us with a song of response.